Okay, we're in lesson four today, folks. We're going to continue on with Paul's defense of his apostleship. Now, you're probably wondering now, it's like, okay, we're three lessons defending his apostleship. What's the big deal here? Can't they grasp the issue, especially after what we just talked about, how the church at Jerusalem affirmed, the leaders affirmed Paul's ministry to the Gentiles and said his message was okay. Why does Paul need to continue talking about his apostleship here? Well, you and I need to understand something. It's called an issue of credibility. And if your credibility is in question, how many of you have had your credibility questioned before? Whether it's been at work, whether it's been you know, with friends or whatever, you, there's a, there is a natural tendency on our part to want to defend ourselves, is there not? Okay, self-defense is the normal thing. This is especially true in the area of spiritual leadership. Paul is the spiritual father to these churches. And he's basically having his entire message and who he is denigrated by these Jewish Christians, or so-called Jewish Christians, these Judaizers, who are basically adding to the law and saying that Paul doesn't know what he's talking about. So Paul's going to go one step further because the authority of these Jewish Christians is Peter. Because remember, they was identified as the apostle to the Jews. And so these guys who are coming up from Jerusalem are saying, well, you know, Peter says this, and Peter says that, and Peter's the man. Peter's the one who's been given the keys, and Peter's the one who's in charge. And, and Paul's going to point out to him, no. No, that's not necessarily true. So I want you to notice with me, we're going to look today at Paul's, first of all, his confrontation with Peter, and then we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at his argument of why he had the confrontation with Peter. And then this is going to really end the whole issue concerning his apostleship. And then next week we're going to get into where he talks about the gospel and the defense of the gospel. So I want you to notice with me verses 11 through 14 of chapter 2. Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to blame. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, lived in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel the Gentiles to live as Jews? Okay, so let's look at a couple things here. First of all, the time of the confrontation. He's going to add one more point to his, to his whole argument here, and he's going to say, look, I had a personal confrontation with Peter, and I want to explain to you, he doesn't adhere to what these guys are saying either, so listen to what I'm saying. So first of all, the confrontation took place when Peter came to Antioch. Now, Antioch would be like in northern Lebanon, right below or right near Turkey, where modern-day Turkey is. So this is north of Israel, but it's a Gentile area. So when Peter came up to the church in Antioch, 
This is when the confrontation took place. Now, here's what he's saying. Paul stated that he confronted Peter because he was to blame for his actions. Now, Paul's making it very clear that the confrontation took place because Peter did something wrong. Now, let's just stop for a moment. Why do you think he's got to make the point that the confrontation took place because Peter did something wrong? Why do you think that's got to enter into the argument? Yeah, because everybody thought Peter was great. Peter could do no wrong. Peter's the lead apostle. Peter was Jesus' right-hand man. And so everybody thought, wow, this is the guy. Well, Paul's saying, look, I had a confrontation with him, but let me explain something to you. I had a confrontation with him because he did wrong. He was to blame. He didn't do right. Now let's go on. The nature of the confrontation, listen to what Paul says. First of all, he's going to talk about Peter's duplicity. When Peter first came, he ate with the Gentiles. So the first thing he points out is when Peter showed up, he ate with the Gentiles. So there he was when they would have fellowships together. And, and, and let me explain to you how it was. When they gathered for worship on the Lord's Day, more than likely it was in a home or in a gathering place. So, like, for instance, if they could get, like, the Civic Center, they would meet there, and they would have worship all day long, and they more than likely would have a meal there. You understand? When they came together, it was potluck every week. You brought something so everybody ate. And the point was, is when they had their meal, he wanted to point out that Peter ate with the Gentiles. So he's rubbing shoulders at the same table with the Gentiles eating. So he's eating with the Gentiles. Now, here's the next point. But here's what he says. When the Judaizers arrived, Peter separated himself from the Gentiles. Now, when the brethren, as he says, or when the folks came from James, that is, when the folks came from the Jerusalem church, Peter all of a sudden changes his actions. He's no longer eating with the Gentiles. He's kind of sitting at the table with the Holy Joes from Jerusalem. Now, do you see there's a problem there, don't you? When the folks from Jerusalem weren't there, what was Peter doing? He's eating with the Gentiles. But when they show up, what does he do now? What's that? He's basically shunning them. He's acting one way when they're there and one way where they're not. Now, what do we call that, folks? Hypocrisy. Now, have you ever known somebody to do that? Have you, ever, have you ever known Christians to do that? Like when they're at work, they're like everybody else, but then all of a sudden when somebody from the church is there, then all of a sudden they start acting weird. At least that's what everybody else thinks. Right? It's called duplicity. It's called hypocrisy. And, and listen to me. This is actually, this is a good passage for us to read because sometimes we put spiritual leaders up on a high plane and we say, boy, they're really holy men. Peter's a holy guy. What are you seeing here about Peter? He's human. That's exactly right. He's a hypocrite, just like the rest of us. There's a hypocrisy there. He's not a perfect guy. Listen, let me explain something to you. 
Remember what Peter was like when he was with Jesus? He sometimes spoke first before he thought first. So he would say things, and Jesus would rebuke him for what he's saying because he wasn't thinking, and he got caught a lot. And so he was kind of, he was the guy, when they came to arrest Jesus, he'd grab his sword and walk off a guy's ear because he was, wasn't thinking, he was just reacting. So that's Peter. Now here's the thing. Did that change? Does that change overnight? No. His commitment to Christ became more secure after the ascension. You understand? And there's a boldness with Peter. But the personality of Peter is still there. So the same personality that would be like, yeah, let's do it, is the same one who denied him three times when push came to shove. So, for instance, how is, listen to me, you got somebody as bold as Peter, but he denies Jesus three times, but he's also now, when the Jerusalem guys show up, he's not eating. How is that very similar to the denial? Three times. What's the similar? You see how it's similar? How is it similar? Okay, that's that's good. That's good. Uh, so that's not what I'm looking for, though. That's good to get an answer, though, Tim. What wasn't a separation? So think about his. He's going along with the crowd because he doesn't like what. What doesn't he like? Well, he might get ridiculed, but ultimately he doesn't like confrontation. So let's go back to let's go let's go to the the, the courtyard of the high priest where he's there and he's being. He's being challenged. Well, you're one of those followers of, of Jesus, aren't you? No, not me. Here's the guys from Jerusalem showing up. Peter, you wouldn't eat with the Gentiles, would you? What do you think he said? Yeah, not me. So here, here, here's what, I'm, what I want you to see. It's the same Peter. He knew in his heart what was right because he ate with them. But when push came to shove and there was pressure in the situation, what did he do? Gave in to those Judaizers. Now Paul sees this. How do you think he's going to react? Well, we can almost guess. Okay? Well, let's go on here. Look at here. Here's Paul's reaction. Oh, wait a minute. First of all, there is an influence here. Peter's action influenced other Jewish believers to do wrong. See, this is the problem. Does everybody understand you're being watched and your actions are being evaluated and they're influencing people? It doesn't have to be just little ones. You understand? Or your children. Although that's one level. The other aspect of it is maybe that there are others around you, either family or other Christians around you, who are watching you too, and you could influence others. And so here's Peter. He's a, he is a pillar in the church. And so he's doing this, and what do you think the other Jewish Christians are going to do? They know the truth, but here's Peter saying, well, you know, we better not eat with those Gentiles. And so he's influencing them to give in to these Judaizers. 
Do you see the negative influence there? So, so Peter's actions influenced Jewish believers to do wrong. Now here's the other thing. Peter's actions even affected Barnabas. Now that's the problem. Because who's Whose buddy is Barnabas? Paul's. Who, who was their ministry to? Gentiles. And so here's Barnabas now, the son of encouragement, which is what Barnabas means, and he's even being affected by Peter's actions. He's even being affected. Things aren't good, are they, folks? So I want you to notice now Paul's reaction. Paul saw the bigger picture concerning their actions. This is where a lot of us have problems. Paul saw the bigger picture. The Apostle Paul saw the bigger picture. Here's the problem. A lot of us, when we do things, we only think in terms of now, short term. We don't look beyond the bigger picture. What is my action going to do later? How's my action going to affect others? So Peter wasn't thinking. Peter was only thinking about who? Himself. He doesn't want a confrontation with these guys. Or maybe he doesn't want to remove his status with them. How many of you have been in that kind of situation before where you've seen somebody that had some kind of status and then, you know, it kind of brings on a persona of its own and even though they don't want to act that way, they've got to act that way because others expect them to act that way. Have you ever met people like that? I have. You know? So here's what's going on. So Paul sees the bigger picture here and he says, wait a minute, now hold on. We've got to address this because if we don't address this, this is going to create a bigger problem. It's going to create a bigger problem. So then I want you to notice now, their actions struck at the heart of the gospel. It's like, hold on, George. Paul, what's the matter with you? Just because he didn't want to eat with the Gentiles and he ate only with the Jews, that's striking at the heart of the gospel? Are you sure? You better believe it. Because what's at the heart of the gospel? The issue of acceptance with God. And so by separating themselves from the Gentiles, what are they communicating to the Gentiles? What's that, Art? I'm better than you, or I'm more accepted than you, because I'm doing these things and you're not doing them. You understand what I'm saying? We begin to communicate by our actions, whether we realize it or not, that my acceptance with God is better than your acceptance. But God accepts me more than you because I am doing these certain things and you're not. Now, what's the problem with that? Strikes at the heart of the gospel, because the gospel is what? The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Can you do anything for the acceptance of God? No, it's because He did it all for you. So whether or not you're circumcised or not, or whether or not you keep the Jewish festivals or not, whether or not you keep the Jewish high days or not, whether or not you're eating pork or not, is not going to affect your whole issue with your acceptance with God. Aren't you glad for that? Because I know a lot of you were eating pork and sauerkraut a few days ago, and if that was true, you're in trouble if these Judaizers are okay, because you can't be eating pork. I'm going to add in there, you can't eat sauerkraut, okay? So, what? Yeah, okay. Oh, okay. 
<laughs> well, here, here's my point. You see, it's striking at the heart of the gospel. Let me ask you something. Does that happen today? Nobody's telling you to be circumcised. Nobody's telling you to keep the high Jewish holidays and so forth. Nobody's telling you to eat certain foods, although sometimes they do. What kind of things are out there today that are communicating, if you don't do these things, you're not accepted with God? What are they today? Because we still have the same problem today, don't we? Okay, what are they? Carry the right Bible. If you're not carrying the right Bible, you're not right with God. Okay, if you're not baptized a certain way, okay. Dress the right way. Run with the right crowd, okay. What's the right crowd anyhow? Have anybody ever figured that out? Huh? Yeah, who's the right crowd? Okay. What are some other things? Okay, how much you give, okay. What kind of service stuff you're doing. Okay, that's that's good, Tim. All right. You know, that's the 11th commandment in Baptist circles. Thou shalt tithe. Okay. But is, there, is it a commandment? It's a grace. If you go to the Corinthian letters, Paul describes it as a grace, not a commandment. Because he says for you to give not by compulsion... But freely give, and that's what God blesses. Okay? Because when it's compulsion, so if George starts doing the heavy-handed tactics, how are you going to feel about giving? Not going to feel good at all. It's a burden. And in fact, that's what Peter would later say to his Jewish brethren when the folks got saved in Cornelius' house. You know, we tried to live the law and it was just a burden to us. Why do we want to impose it upon these folks? Now think about that. That's what Peter said a few years before this incident. You see how much he's allowed peer pressure to shape him? You see what I'm saying? You know, so you can be molded whether you realize it and you start thinking in terms of your acceptance with God is based upon some action. Okay, let's go on. Here's the thing. Therefore... Paul confronted Peter concerning his behavior. Paul confronted Peter concerning his behavior. And notice what he says here. Did he confront him privately? Look at verse 14. Did he confront him privately? No. Who did he do it in front of? Okay, so let me explain something to you. There's a good principle here. Oftentimes folks will say, you need to confront sin privately for that person. That is true to a point. Here is the measure of when you confront somebody. Okay? If it's a private sin, you confront privately. Unless they don't want to deal with it, then you go through the steps of Matthew 18, which is you take somebody else with you, you know, you take two brethren, and then you bring it to the church. But if it's a public sin, where it's affecting everyone, the confrontation has to take place what? Publicly. Why? Because if they had just rebuked Peter privately, is that going to set things in order? No. He's really got to set this one in order because the whole issue of the gospel is at stake. 
In fact, notice what he does. When he confronts Peter, he confronts Peter about his duplicity, his hypocrisy. Notice what he says. Look with me. Here's what he says. In fact, we're going to look at it now. Look at verses uh, 14b there. It says, Paul points out that Peter set aside the ritual and ceremonial laws. Look at what he says. If you, being a Jew, live in the manner of the Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? So here's what he's saying. Here's Paul saying, you, Peter, you set aside the ritual, you set aside the ceremonial, because, I mean, listen, they had to do stuff like every time they walk in a house, they had to wash their feet a certain way, and they had to wash their hands, and they had to do all these different things. I mean, it, it, it's, if you looked at what they had to do, it, you would be like, holy cow, that's craziness. But that's what a devout Jew would do. Well, now, with Christ, Peter realized, I don't have to do any of that. So guess what? He's not living that way. So here he is. He's saying, look, man, you're setting aside all this other stuff of the law. And explain something. Does Paul know about the law? Why? Because he once lived the law. And who lived the law perfectly? Paul did. You understand what I'm saying? So he knew the law, so he's like, hey, Peter, you want to, you want, you want to tout law? I can tout law here. And you know I'm a whole lot better qualified to talk about it than you are. Okay, because he was trained. Peter wasn't. Was Peter was what? He was just an ignorant fisherman. Okay, so here's what he says. Here's what he's saying. Yet, Peter expected the Gentiles, believers, to embrace Jewish customs. So here's Peter. He's throwing off what he doesn't like, but he's expecting the Gentile believers to embrace this other stuff. You understand? So, okay, we're not going to do the foot washing thing and, and the hand washing thing, and we're not going to do all that stuff, but you know what? We do want to keep these other things, and so you need to keep these other things. And so Paul, Paul, Peter's saying, look, that's not right for you to, you're living in hypocrisy here. You're advocating this one group live the law, but you're not living the law yourself. How do you like that when folks do that? How do you like that when folks... We do it every day, don't we? All of us do it. In fact, that's why Paul says later in Romans that the very measuring stick, the very standard by which we judge others, we ourselves will be judged by. Isn't that scary? We pick and choose what we want to do. That's exactly right. Yeah. Okay, we pick and choose. Now, look at verse 15 and 16. We who are Jews by nature and not, sin and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. So now Peter's going to talk about, Paul's going to talk about their common experiences, Jews here. Here's what he's saying about their common background. First of all, Paul points out that he and Peter were both Jews by birth. So first of all, their common background here. They're both Jews by birth. Then look what he says here. Here's what he stresses. He stresses that man is not justified by works of the law. 
stop for a moment. Think about that. We already know that, don't we? Because there, how many times did a Jew have to go make sacrifices? Lots. Every time you did something wrong or sinned, you had to go make a sacrifice. Well, stop for a moment. Even for the sins that you didn't even know you did. The sins of ignorance. You had to make, there was an offering for sins of ignorance, for sins that you, you committed that you did wrong. And so, could their righteous actions justify them? No, they still had to make these sacrifices. This is the point that Paul's stressing here. He's saying man is not justified by the works of the law. Period. So here's what he's saying. Paul points out that justification comes through faith in Jesus Christ. This is how you're justified. It's not by the stuff you do. It's by your faith in Jesus because he did it for you. Does everybody understand me? Your salvation has nothing to do with you, whether you came from the right family, whether you did the right things, whether you got the right job, the right education, whether you're doing more good stuff than bad stuff. That is not the basis of your salvation. The basis of your salvation is recognizing that somebody else paid the price for you and you trust in him rather than yourself. Because you know in and of yourself, you've got no ground to stand on. This is what he's saying. Paul points out that justification comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, here's what he's saying. Paul points out that he and Peter believed in Jesus Christ. Both of them believed in Jesus Christ. They were justified by faith and not by the works of the law. They were justified by faith and not by works of the law. Nobody's justified by anything but by your faith alone. So here's the principle. Okay, folks, here's the principle. Following the law does not justify anybody. Here, I'll put it in everyday language. You doing the right things spiritually is not going to get you your acceptance with God. You understand what I'm saying? Just because you do the right things, dress the right way, carry the right Bible, do your devotions all the time, come to church, get involved, live a holy moral life, does not mean you're justified before God. Do you understand? That doesn't justify anybody. What justifies a person? Faith in what Jesus did for you. Do you understand what I'm saying? Faith in Christ alone. Now look at verse 17 through 21. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroy, I make myself a transgressor. For I through the law died to the law that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Okay, so here's the implications. First of all, the believer in the law. Paul stresses that grace does not give license for a believer to sin. Okay, you're saying, well, man, I must have, if, if it's not what I do that justifies me, then I can just do whatever I want to do. No, that's not what he's saying here. So if you recognize that he died for you, 
then you realize that it's what you did that put him on the cross. And that's not freedom to just go do whatever you want to do. Okay, let's go on now. Here else is what he's saying. Following the law only reveals that I'm a sinner. How many of you tried to drive 25 through town? How many? How many? How many? Just don't raise your hand because I don't. We don't have to. We don't have to show everybody our sin. But just the 25 mile per hour speed limit tells you you're what? You're a sinner, right? What did Sammy Hager sing? I can't drive 55. That's that's true, isn't it? Some people can, but they drive you crazy, right? What does that reveal? What does the law reveal? It reveals you're a sinner. Do you understand what I'm saying? It reveals you're a sinner. Here's what I'm saying. The crucified life. The law results in death that exposes our desperate need for salvation. See, the law, all it does is point out that I'm a sinner and that, I'm, that by law I should die. And it, it shows that I need someone else to pay the price for me. So it, it, it results in death and exposes our desperate need for salvation. Now here's what he's saying. Paul stresses the reality that through our death to the law, we become alive in Christ. We become alive in Christ when we realize that we're dead to the law. It's not our justification in the law. Okay, then find two final points as a principle here. Paul stresses that he does not set aside grace for the keeping of the law. Don't set aside grace for the keeping of the law. And we do that. We'll have that tendency because somebody will come along and all of a sudden you'll get influence and you'll start thinking, my only acceptance with Jesus is if I drink sweet tea. And so you'll start, George says you've got to drink sweet tea. And, and look, George, I'm drinking sweet tea. And you start thinking in terms of that as far as your, and that's a joke one, okay? That's a that's a funny illustration, but what I want you to see is, it's serious things like that. Look at how I'm dressed. Look at the Bible I'm carrying. All of that is to justify yourself, and it's not going to justify anything. You're setting aside grace. So the final point is this. If righteousness is the result of keeping the law, then Christ's sacrifice is meaningless. If your acceptance with God is based upon those things, here's the bottom line, folks. Jesus' death on a cross was meaningless. It was for no purpose. So this leads into our next discussion, which we'll look at next week in chapter 3, which is his defense of the gospel. Because he's going to go now to the heart of what the gospel is. All right, let's close it.